0: learn who rules over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize you are listening to ach i your host and today is thursday so i'm delighted to welcome back my regular guest dr peter hammonds let's bring him up right now peter are you with us i am thank you andrew thank you so much peter today folks we've got a show entitled the real story of death and the life after. So where would you like to start us off today, Peter?
1: The whole world, not just the United Kingdom, has been focused on the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for most of the last two weeks. And we we understand this is probably the greatest media event of our lifetime. And uh, we've been told that 4 billion people were watching live online uh, yesterday uh, on, on Monday on the um, uh, funeral of the Queen on, on the 19th of September. And uh, uh, even here in South Africa, uh, even friends of mine who Congolese and Nigerian, <laughs> are absolutely riveted, uh, it's, it must uh, astound people how way beyond the English-speaking world, way beyond the Commonwealth and the old British Empire, there's such a fascination with Britain, with British history, with British pageantry, and uh, and with the life and death of the Queen. So I think many people have been thinking about death and the afterlife, and many people who've been emotionally uh, affected by this have doubtless been surprised because, um, I think many, many people, of course, most of us have never met the Queen, but we've all been surprised by the deep sense of loss and grief we're experiencing. And for many cases, it could be reminding us of very personal losses where we've lost our loved one. Uh, and uh, the personal grief many of us have experienced, doubtless, is also uh, shown us. But think of the tremendous impact that this had. I'm, I'm thinking of this now from a big picture. That here you've had, uh, just in, in the last month, the death of an idol of the New World Order, Mikhail Gorbachev, and the death of someone who represents Christian nationalism, Queen yeah. Elizabeth II. And of course, uh, the role she played, the, the position she represents is far bigger than any individual family. And you can see this, the traditions involved, the ceremonies involved, the uniforms involved, the carriages involved, go back centuries. And uh, the uh, even Westminster Abbey, which is a, a, a cathedral that's been uh, built over a thousand years ago and of phenomenal history in it. So there's so much history and tradition here. But I think it's intriguing to just contrast how we've had two programs just on Mikhail Gorbachev, who is the idol of the New World Order and uh, uh, the man who really initiated the Great Reset, who wrote the Earth Charters, the new Ten Commands, the new Sermon of And yet there was virtual apathy over his death, not in the media. The media made a big thing about Mikhail Gorbachev, but uh, even BBC had to say hundreds of people uh, attended the uh, funeral of Mikhail Gorbachev and came to pay their respects. Hundreds, Uh, as opposed to hundreds of thousands who came to uh, view the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II and uh, millions who lined the, Uh, procession routes uh, on on the funeral on Monday, and four billion who watched the the funeral now, evidently uh, the love and the respect and the interest and the support for tradition and for the monarchy is far stronger than most had been led to believe. And, you know, when you think of the the hundreds who attended or even went uh, past the coffin of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev Uh, in Moscow, uh, it it was a non-event in the view of most people in Russia and most people in Moscow to the extent that even the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, did not even attend the funeral of Mikhail Gorbachev because he's too busy. Uh, As opposed to over 100 heads of state coming to Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, it was the greatest concentration of heads of state probably ever seen in history at any funeral, at any event. Absolutely extraordinary, must have been a security nightmare. And uh, I I must say, I think this is intriguing because here we've had the globalists pushing for the need to abolish borders and the fact that it's terrible to have nations. And those who've been advocating multiculturalism and uh, a one world government, a one world interfaith religion, a one world economic system, they must be somewhat discouraged, depressed. And I've seen some Republicans in Australia and so on crying about the fact that they hoped that with the death of the Queen, uh, the monarchy would die too and Australia could become a republic, and so on. And, and that they were astounded, shocked, surprised, horrified at how the love for the monarchy and for tradition and for Christianity and for nationalism is far, far stronger than it had previously been appreciated. And so I, I think we also need to see, even though we may have serious problems with individuals and with the family, and uh, I share those concerns, yes, but looking at the big picture, the people here are not are not showing respect necessarily for the individuals uh, involved in the royal family as much as for the tradition and for the Christian nationalism that this represents. This is actually resistance and a serious reverse for the new world order. And I, I think that uh, we should be grateful for the fact that, a very large portion of the world's population, possibly half of the total population of the world, tuned into a service where great old old hymns were sung, where vital passages of scripture were read, where moving prayers were conducted in a magnificent, beautiful, historic cathedral. This is bearing witness to another age, and I dare to say bearing witness to the age to come, because all the purposeful pageantry and the meaningful ceremony and the inspiring and stirring music, and the colourful ornate uniforms, and the military precision, the marching, the traditions, the majestic solemnity. This was all done in accordance with Queen Elizabeth II's wishes. Uh, she was party to Operation London Bridge, and uh, for decades they had been planning what would happen when the Queen died, and she even had a say in it. And she chose hymns to be sung, which included Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, and The Lord's My Shepherd, which was sung at her wedding to Prince Philip in the very same Westminster Cathedral how many decades before. So in the cathedral where she was married and the cathedral where she was crowned is where she chose to have a funeral. The first funeral for a monarch in Westminster Abbey, I'm told, since King George II, who was the king who started the tradition of rising and standing for the hallelujah chorus in the um, and the Handel's Messiah, because King George II said, you cannot remain seated for the anthem of the King of Kings. So since the 17th century, uh, since the 18th century, the 1700s, when King George II died, there has been no funeral for a royal in, in Westminster Abbey. And so uh, although they've tended to be buried at Windsor Castle, which is where the Queen chose to be buried, but nevertheless, the funeral was held at Westminster Abbey first, and that's intriguing. And you can see the history that's in Westminster Abbey and the traditions that are involved, and that people heard words from John 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I mean, that, that, that was read. Um, extraordinary. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, one of the best pastors in the Bible on the resurrection of the body and the hope of the resurrection that that was part of the order of service. This is magnificent because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believed. And praise God that the Queen was not ashamed to own her Christian faith. And she did incorporate it in many a message on radio and TV over the years. And she did bear witness to Christ in a very simple way, uh, giving many of the scriptures the words of Christ uh, over and reminding a increasingly secular Agnostic and atheistic world, an increasingly Christophobic and anti-Christian world. She made a strong stand. And to think that we had so many heads of state compelled to sit quietly while scriptures were read, and participate in great hymns being sung, and to be uh, required to bow their heads while great Christian prayers were prayed. Uh, I think that's something to be grateful for, and to pray that God may mercifully and graciously use this witness, which. For many millions of people around the world, perhaps billions, this might have been the first and maybe the only exposure many of them have ever had to great old hymns of the faith, sacred passages of the scripture being read, and uh, prayers in a Christian service. And uh, so I think this can easily be used to just show that the secularists and the globalists have not been quite as successful as they've led us to believe. The overwhelming support, it's, it's just... Phenomenal. And contrasted with the lukewarm response to Gorbachev's death and the uh, very few, even in Moscow, who showed interest in in turning up at all, contrast with this incredible scene of hundreds of thousands of people queuing up for hours, sometimes uh, the best part of a day uh, a night to queue around the clock to walk past the coffin of the Queen. But I think there's an important thing to be said here. As I was uh, paying attention, and uh, in Africa, there are many people who, who've paid attention to this. My father was a serious royalist. My father fought all six years of the Second World War in the Royal Artillery, operating 25-pounder, mostly in North Africa and Italy. He was a loyal subject to the Queen, even though being a Rhodesian, and even though he supported Rhodesia's independence from Great Britain, he was still loyal to Queen Elizabeth II, and um, my father actually met the Queen when she was Princess Elizabeth, because in 1947 he catered for the royal family at Victoria Falls Hotel. And uh, in my father's office in the Boulogne Club, I remember seeing a large portrait of Queen Elizabeth II and being a little puzzled that we felt allegiance to a queen so far away, even though my father said, you know, Britain's home. And I said, why do we live in Rhodesia? He said, oh, you can't live in Britain. That is terrible. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we were Rhodesian, but we had allegiance to the queen. And, and I still feel... Uh, some of that motion I I was astounded how emotional I got over hearing of the death of the Queen and um, it was a Reformation Society meeting when I stood up at the end we had a guest speaker and I said uh, on on that night, that Thursday night the words just come through someone it informed me during the programme and I stood up at the end and I said how many know what the significance of Operation London Bridge is? And there was general silence and I said do you know what London bridges down means. And uh, nobody knew, it seemed uh, that this was uh, the code for the the Queen is Dead and uh, putting into operation this incredible 10 days of of, uh, mourning from D plus one all the way up to D plus nine, and uh, that this was worked out uh, for decades uh, ahead. Well, when Rhodesia declared its independence, it included this sign. This um, uh, in, in the form that was signed by Ian Douglas Smith. The people of Rhodesia have always shown unswerving loyalty and devotion to Her Majesty's Queen. God save the Queen. And I've got a picture of the Declaration of Independence signed by Ian Douglas Smith, 11th of the 11th, 1965. And on the wall behind him and his government is a large portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, uh, that was... The point for the first several years of Rhodesia's independence, we were a constitutional monarchy with Queen Elizabeth II as our head of state. Unfortunately, the British government made it impossible and Rhodesia was forced to become a republic, but the people still remained pretty much monarchist at their heart and soul. And I, I think that may be a surprise to many. Uh, well, uh, do you know when Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, uh, gave what uh, he called a sermon, uh, <clears throat> more about that later, he quoted from that Princess Elizabeth in 1947 at her 21st birthday, promised, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of great imperial family to which we all belong. He did not mention that she she made that broadcast in Cape Town. We actually celebrated in Cape Town, in the Cape Town City Hall, a banquet and ball uh, for Queen Elizabeth. Uh, well, Princess Elizabeth's birthday in 1947, her 21st birthday. And what many people may also not have known, but if you look in some of the pictures of Queen Elizabeth, she was frequently wearing a flame lily, platinum and diamond brooch, which was a gift given to her by the children of Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia in 1947 during the royal visit. And uh, you can see from young to old that brooch frequently came out, this platinum flame lily, which is the national flower of Rhodesia the flame lily made of platinum and diamond. So uh, there, there are links. And, uh, of course, our Prime Minister, Ian Smith, who declared our independence from Great Britain in 1965, he fought all six years of the Second World War in the Royal Rhodesian Air Force, mostly in North Africa and Italy. Um, and he has shot down behind enemy lines, uh, fought behind enemy lines in Italy five months and so on. So uh, I don't know how many people in, in uh, Britain and around the world know about the, Rhodesian and South African connections uh, with uh, the Queen. But I was deeply concerned when in the so-called sermon of Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, um, he made a universalist statement. And uh, he said that we can all share in the Queen's hope of everlasting life. And um, well, I don't know how you can say that. There was plainly people of many faiths and religions. And no faiths, there were atheists and agnostics and communists and a whole range of people in that great assemblage. And of course, he's been listened to by something like four billion people at that time. And uh, what a wonderful opportunity to have presented the gospel. But the Archbishop of Canterbury dropped the ball. Uh, His dry, dead, wooden speech at the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth was, I think, the low point, um, what should have been one of the high points, in what was otherwise an immaculate and one could almost say perfect uh, program. Uh, The military precision, the pageantry, the marches, the hymns, all of this was so well done. But what a disappointment to have the Archbishop of Canterbury fail to present the gospel when he had something like 4 billion people watching. He not only dropped the ball and missed the opportunity to present the gospel, but he basically offered a universalist hope that everyone could share in the hope that the Queen had of everlasting life. Without explaining what our Lord Jesus taught, that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And what the Apostle Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What the Apostle Paul proclaimed in Athens, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. I mean, a biblical message of repent and believe, trust and obey. Uh, surrender to Christ, give your life to Christ, Uh, something like that would have been appropriate. But incredibly, uh, I I could only but think back to how well the granddaughter of Margaret Thatcher had read the scripture chosen by her grandmother for her funeral. When Margaret Thatcher was buried at St. Paul's, she expressly instructed that no politician should be allowed to speak, and she just wanted her granddaughter uh, to read Ephesians 6, which... In the light of you know looking there at these people like Tony Blair and uh, uh, Prime Minister Brown and others uh, sitting uh, there uh, squirming as she read about stand against spiritual force of wickedness and high places all all from Ephesians 6 and having done all to stand and put on the breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation a sword the spirit and so well read and so powerful and so effective Margaret Thatcher understood politicians and she knew you don't let a politician take a pulpit at uh, anyone's funeral. And so uh, I think uh, it would have been wise if there'd been more specific uh, re- requirements uh, at this funeral in that sense, because Archbishop of Canterbury really dropped the ball. Our Prime Minister, P.W. Butter, who was the last real decent prime- president we ever had in South Africa, he was first our Prime Minister, then President. And uh, P.W. Berta, uh, he specified that he did not want a state funeral because he knew if it was a state funeral, politicians would be speaking. He said, I don't want any politicians speaking at my funeral. I want the gospel proclaimed. And so P.W. Burtz's funeral, and when he died, obviously every living president South was there, including Mandela and Tauban and F.W. de Klerk, who betrayed our country. All of these were there, and they had to sit and hear the gospel clearly, forcefully, powerfully, presented with real spirit and force. And uh, from a man that uh, our previous president, P.W. But had insisted be the one who gives the sermon. And he had insisted and prepared this man that he must preach the gospel very clearly. Well, uh, these are important things that need to be understood, because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except by him. He is the way. We are lost and Jesus is the way. Here's the truth. We are deceived, and here's the truth. And we are dead in our trespass and sins, and here's the life. Jesus does not just have life, he does not just show the way to life. He is life, personified. He is the resurrection life. He could say outside the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. Which doesn't seem rational that a corpse that has been decaying for four days in the tomb could come out. And yet Lazarus did come out because the words of Jesus have such power. He is the resurrection life, and he, with his, at his word, the dead will come to life. And uh, that's why Christian funerals are in sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. And it's absolutely vital that this message gets out. We should not give the vain hope to people who are living in rebellion to God, to people who are deceived and who are lost and who are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they can share the same hope as a person who surrendered their life to Christ and is following him who's devoted to him, that they can share the same hope of everlasting life. Because there are conditions, there are contexts. You cannot just take a promise of scripture without the context. And so as we confront death, as we cope with grief, as we consider the life after, the life after death, uh, we need to understand the scriptures. And less than a year ago, I lost my beloved wife, Lenora, to cancer and chemotherapy, now, Certainly, cried more in the last ten months than the rest of my life combined. To lose your best friend and your life partner is a grievous burden. But although there's nothing like losing a spouse, the loss of the Queen is yet another reminder of how fragile life is. I mean, for all of my life, she's been a constant, and uh, for most of the lives of all of us, it doesn't matter how old we are, she's been Queen for for more of our life than uh, almost anyone living. say, well that's been the majority of my life, if not all of our life. The Apostle Paul wrote that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is our enemy. Death destroys life. It destroys beauty. It destroys potential. It's a curse. Death is a curse from the fall. The wage of sin is death and humankind are suffering the effects of death as a direct consequence of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, our original parents. Uh, in violating God's laws and uh, choosing to believe the lies of Satan, who said, as God really said, and they doubted God's word. In a multitude of ways, death can come to anyone, at any time, anywhere. Vehicle accidents, crime and violence, through war and disease, through infections, viruses, through medical malpractice, from adverse reactions to vaccines, from heart attacks, strokes and cancer, Death can take the very young as well as the very aged. And Benjamin Franklin quoted Daniel Defoe when he said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, yes, we know about death and taxes. But modern man tries his best to deny it, or at least to distract ourselves so much as to not to think of it very much and to delay it. Yet, it was not always so. Society used to live with death more often most people used to die in homes um, and most people were exposed to death from a very young age and uh, uh, death was far more accepted in the previous cultures but now in the 21st century uh, it's been removed from us it's been professionalised it's been farmed out it's been delegated most people now die in hospitals and hospices and uh, the family don't see the final breath of of their loved one and uh, death now is something that's almost a taboo subject now, Sadiq Socrates said the essence of philosophy is preparation for death. We need to number our days aright that we can gain a heart of wisdom. Read that in Psalm 90 verse 12. The Bible says it is better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. Because the living should always remind ourselves that death waits for us all. That's Ecclesiastes seven two. My mother confronted death from a very early age. She was just six years old when she experienced the first aerial bombardment. My mother... Um, Ingrid Eva Lindemann was at the circus in Berlin, August 1940, when the RAF bombers came overhead and unleashed the cog of death. And she was almost trampled in the stampede of the crowds, trying to escape the explosions. Although only six years old at the time, her mother endured multiple thousand bomber raids. She, until between six and 11, she saw her neighborhood ruined, her neighbors dead and mangled. And throughout her later life as a medical nurse, she frequently cared for the sick, the injured, and the dying in intensive care units. That's how she even met my father, who came back from Rhodesia to Britain to uh, see his father who was dying, and my mother was in the same hospital. That's how they actually met. Now, as a missionary, often in war-torn areas, over the last 40 years I've been a missionary to 38 countries. I've been involved in eight wars, and I've been confronted with people dying from man-made famine, Shocking scenes of massacres in the killing fields of Mozambique, during the Holocaust of Rwanda, undefined Sudan. I've been bombed, rocketed, strafed, put in front of a firing spot, told I'm going to die, and so on and so forth. Well, I had guns pressed to my forehead with people screaming, uh, you will die. Uh, Yes, uh, nothing can prepare you for the shock of seeing a mangled vehicle mutilated people at the site of a landmine the devil seed, these tools of terror, or the victims of petrol bombs, necklace murders, the brutal Winnie Mandela necklace murder, where they pour gasoline over a person and, and put a tire over to wedge their arms in and then set them alight, or church buildings strewn with corpses, which I've seen not just in Rwanda, but even in Cape Town, where the church where my brother and my father were converted was attacked by terrorists, and to come in and see Bible in a pool of blood, uh, pews upturned, uh, shrapnel in the ceiling, uh, blood on the ground, people lying in pools of their own blood, um, where Jared Hawker, a 21-year-old young man, leapt on a hand grenade that landed in the aisle to absorb the impact in his own body to save the lives of the people around on each side of the aisle. How can you cope with such horrific suffering and atrocities? Well, in my experience, those of us who call to serve the suffering, need to effectively arm a plate of hearts, minds and emotions so that we can do what needs to be done to practically care for the survivors. You need to focus on what can be done practically to meet immediate needs. It does not help anyone if the caregivers or emergency workers break down tears every time they're confronted with crisis and tragedy. But at some point, one does need to process what we've witnessed and post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD, as they call it, can be very real for soldiers and policemen and firemen and ambulance and paramedic staff and nurses and doctors and people who've nursed loved ones in their dying days in the home. We need to turn to the great physician, our Lord Jesus Christ. I've had to fall on my knees on countless occasions, and I've had to pour out my grief and frustrations and tears to the Lord to pray the Psalms the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible, the biggest book of the Bible, the middle book of the Bible, how many times just had to open the Bible in the middle and just start to pray the Psalms and to communicate the confusion and frustration and grief and anger and sometimes rage to implore God's intervention, to plead for his healing hand, to bring these injustices to the foot of the throne of God. Then there needs to be a time of reflection, what's been learned, and we need to listen to those who've been suffering and learn from the insights and needs. What is God saying to us through this? What does the Bible say about this? How can we be better prepared to help others? And so there need to be learning through suffering. Most of my life's been dedicated to serving persecuted Christians in restricted access areas throughout Africa as a missionary to the persecuted, uh, smuggling in Bibles, evangelizing, helping, speaking up for them, researching the facts, listening to the people on the ground, speaking up for them, making their stories known, mobilizing prayer and action on their behalf, and training teachers, equipping medics, delivering Bibles, school textbooks, medicines that can make a difference. And that's been most of my life, over 40 years I've I've focused on serving the suffering. And so um, I would have thought that I was pretty well prepared to know how to deal with death and grapple with grief. But however much we may have been deeply affected by the sufferings of others, Nothing really prepares you for when tragedy comes to your home. The deaths of my grandparents left me with a deep sense of loss, but they lived in Europe and I lived in Africa. I live in Africa. I've always lived in Africa. The death of my father hit me hard. I was 26 at the time and seeing him deteriorate from heart attacks and strokes. I've hated smoking from a young age. Seeing how it destroyed my father's health filled me with even greater determination to never have anything to do with that. Health destroying habit. Even as my father was on an oxygen machine, struggling to breathe, he would still be trying to smoke in between taking breaths of oxygen. And you know, I said, "Dad, this, this can, you know, blow up the whole house here. You've got this oxygen tank right next to your bed, and and you're taking cigarette smokes in between. And you can't bring any flame near near uh, oxygen." Um my dad uh, was so addicted, and doctors have inform me that nicotine is one of the most addictive substances on earth. Not the worst addictive substance, but it is the most addictive substance on earth, I'm being told. Well, seeing my strong father become weaker and weaker until he could barely breathe was traumatic. He died at Crutuscoe Hospital, hospital in Cape Town, where the first heart transplant was done in history. He died in the early hours of Christmas Eve, 1986. Well, my mother also smoked daily and her health deteriorated and the doctor Warned her that smoking had clogged up her arteries and she had serious circulation problems and she's been poisoned to death. And part of her foot went gangrenous and the gangrenous part of her foot needed to be amputated to save her life. But as a nurse, my mother was a very difficult patient and she refused any amputation. And when she fell into a coma, the doctor turned to me for authorization for amputation, which now needed to be a whole leg above the knee. Knowing that my mother had an abhorrence for amputation and had forbidden both my brother and I to ever consent to it, I phoned my elder brother who was in the Transvaal and he pointed out to me there's no point in my mother hating both of us, and I was after all in, on the ground in Cape Town, so I reluctantly signed the authorization, and that was done with grief, but the recovery to health of my mother was dramatic. Before the amputation, her complexion was grey. She wasn't a coma and she was dying. But once the gangrenous limb had been amputated, her whole complexion changed for the better. With losing her leg, though, my mother also lost her mobility. She lost her work as a nurse, her vehicle, her home, which was on the first floor of an apartment block without any elevator. So we welcomed her into her home, and as soon as quickly as possible, we built a cottage in our garden for her to live in, and she enjoyed another three and a half years of life after that amputation. And her grandchildren were delighted to have her have their umi as part of their daily lives. Her relationship with the Lord flourished. And as traumatic as the amputation was, it did save a life in more ways than one. So sometimes hard decisions need to be made, but good things can come for it. The fact is, my grandparents died in the hospital ICU. My parents died in the hospital ICU. However, my wife, Lenora, chose to rather die at home. And this was at the end of an 11-year on-again, off-again battle with cancer and chemo. We cannot say with certainty which killed her, the cancer or the chemotherapy, but chemotherapy most certainly ruined her health. Just a year before, Lina was energetically dragon boat racing, even internationally, winning races. Um, She was the chairman of, of the local cancer survivor dragon boating team. She was hiking and climbing mountains with us. Five years before, Lenora had informed the oncologist that she was determined never to do chemotherapy again. However, somehow the oncologist convinced her to subject herself to chemotherapy yet again, and it shattered her health. And over the last month, Lenora was in constant pain, frequent nausea. She aged decades in just a couple of months, and it became increasingly difficult for her to even move around. And there were frequent visits to the hospital, blood transfusions when her platelets were too low, a cocktail of medicines and supplements, needed to be imbibed, and to keep all this straight, we had to maintain an excise book to record when and what was taken or administered on a daily, even hourly basis, even 15-minutely basis sometimes. She became unable to walk unaided without crutches or walker or wheelchair, and just being able to move from bedroom to bathroom became agonizing, difficult, complicated. Lenora realized her body could not survive much longer. She determined to rather die at home with her family than in a hospital ward among strangers, which remember last year, even family was being denied access to their family members who were dying in hospital because of this COVID cult, lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness, salvation by vaccination, COVID cult. Well, while none of us were medically trained. We sought to rise to the challenge and we sought to honour our wishes by becoming our caregivers. We researched, received all the guidance and help we could from hospice. And all manner of equipment had to be borrowed or rented to accommodate and care for her as her health rapidly deteriorated. We brought an oxygen support machine and we had frequent scheduled power failures and so I became adept at sprinting down the hallway to turn on the generator to keep oxygen flowing uninterrupted through the night because our socialist government over here can't keep electricity on the go. Right now we're in level six um, lock, uh, power failures with power failures coming um, on and off, frequently through the day, sometimes six times a day with our power failure, sometimes for two hours, sometimes for four and a half hours, no p- power at all. And uh, you can just imagine how that disrupts life and business and factories and and patients needing oxygen machines, so we had to have a generator. Well, Enora needed constant 24-hour care, and so our family took it in turns to watch her and help her throughout the day, and in my case, throughout the night. It became difficult for her to even drink, and we need to lift up a glass with a straw. And lady, she could not even use a straw, and we needed syringes filled with water, to which we had to add rehydrated packages with electrolytes and other essentials. And you can imagine, as you minister to your loved one as they approach death, it's traumatic. Um, and to be up constantly through the night, sometimes barely getting 10 consecutive minutes of sleep through a night to reposition, to administer medicines, to give water through syringe, hold a hand, read the scriptures, pray with her, And so we had to grapple with grief. We had to deal with death. And we chose to make the environment beautiful and to have uh, lots of flowers and uh, Handel's Messiah being played in the background. She had sung many times Handel's Messiah and other great hymns and, and, and choirs that she's part of through the years, including in great cathedrals. Now, all of this provided an inspiring atmosphere and many memories in her final days and hours. And so, uh, in the early hours of the 9th of November, between Level 4 power failures, my wife Lenora passed into eternity. Now, we know that she was not afraid to die. Lenora often told people, I know where I'm going. However, it is traumatic to see a loved one suffer pain and discomfort, especially over many months. The doctor expressed amazement she had lasted so long. And while nothing can fully prepare you for this loss, and there were a lot of tears, uh, but there was also amidst the grief and loss, there's a sense of relief that she was at least out of pain and free from the curse of cancer and chemo. It was an act of love and service to attempt to be caregivers during a time of lockdown lunacy, where innumerable families were prevented from even visiting their dying relatives in hospital. It was my wife's greatest desire to live to see her grandchildren and to have her children and grandchildren no further than five minutes away. Well, that desire was granted. As of November last year, all four of our children, son-in-law, all three of our grandsons were all living at our beautiful home, enjoying the garden she had lovingly built up and decorated over many decades. In Revelation Revelation 21, verse 4, we read, And God will wipe away every tear from my eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor sighing. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Our Lord Jesus Christ declared, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's in John 11. God has created us for eternity. Heaven is mentioned over 550 times in the Bible. Heaven is also mentioned by other names, like it's described as the better country, which the prophets sought after. The city which has foundations is build and maker is God. Hebrews 11 verse 10. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a real place. And Jesus said he goes to prepare a place for us. And the Greek word for place is topos, from where we get topography and typology from, the writing and study of places. The Bible distinguishes between three heavens. In 2 Corinthians 12, we, we here of air, where the birds fly. Uh, for example, we've got in Matthew 6, verse uh, 26, the birds of the air. A space where the stars shine. Acts 7, verse 42 speaks about the stars in the heavens. And then there's paradise. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 10, our Lord uh, speaks about paradise, which is God's home. We are told to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor- angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, atheists have always vigorously campaigned against the concept of heaven because it would imply create and require accountability for ethics. Well, after the Russians sent their first cosmonaut into space, the Soviet used him for propaganda purposes on his return. So this cosmonaut was sent on speaking to us throughout the schools of the Soviet Union to inform teachers and students, I've been into space, and I can assure you, I have not seen God, nor did I see heaven. Well, at one school, a young, brave girl stood up and said, but comrade, the Bible tells us that only the pure in heart will see God. (laughs) Well, (laughs) recently, this cosmonaut undertook a far more significant journey than a space voyage. They lowered his body into a grave. And so by now, this cosmonaut knows there's a God, although he may not get much time to see heaven. We do not know if he turned to God before the end of his life, but we do know that the premise of his propaganda looks more and more laughable as we discover more about our universe. Our solar system is one of many. There could be millions of suns in countless other galaxies from which our sun and Earth might not even be barely visible. Considering the extremely small section of space between Earth and the moon that this cosmonaut was able to travel through, his confident assertion that atheism um, is true is ludicrous. In the Bible, we told it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. The living should always be reminded that death waits us all. There's a time for everything, and there's a season for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born, and there is a time to die. And this this is true, and this is a fact. And so uh, there's an appointment that not one of us will be able to miss. In fact, it's an appointment we won't even be able to be late for. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this to face judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. It would be good if Archbishop Justin Welby had actually mentioned that, that there's nothing more certain than death and nothing as uncertain as the time of dying, but we should be ready for the day of judgment, because after death comes a day of judgment. We will have to stand before our Creator, the Eternal Judge, a Holy God, and give an account of our lives. And the question is not, has a place been prepared? The question is, are we prepared for that place? Will your name be called? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven? Some people are writing in condolence books around the world. That's fine. But is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to Father except by him. And it's so vital that we understand what Queen Elizabeth mentioned in many of her broadcasts. And on the occasion of her 90th birthday, 2016, Script Union, in partnership with the Bible Study in Great Britain, published her book, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. This book consisted of quotes from her speeches which honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And particularly at Christmas messages, the Queen often reflected on her Christian faith. And this theme of service was come back to again and again as she advocated the example of Jesus as a pattern and a framework for our lives. And Um, In her 2000 Christmas broadcast, for example, she spoke of the true measure of Christ's influence is not only in the lives of saints and stained glass windows and pictures, but in the good works quietly done by millions of men and women day in, day out, throughout the centuries. Christ's great emphasis was to give spirituality a practical purpose. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provides a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and examples. And she said at the heart of our faith is not a preoccupation of our own welfare and comfort, but the concepts of service and sacrifice as shown in the life and teachings of the one who made of himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. In 2012, the Queen spoke of God sending his son to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. She quoted the beautiful carol in Bleak Midwinter, which asks all of us who know the Christmas story, how God gave himself just an humble servant. What can I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But the carol gives the answer. Yet what can I give him? I can give him my heart. And it is important to not give people false hope. It's no good to tell people, oh, you can share this this hope of everlasting life. Well, yes, you can, but then you need to surrender your life to Christ. You need to repent of your sins. You need to put your faith in Christ alone for eternal salvation. And so this message does need to be proclaimed. And I'm grateful for all the people around the world who witnessed a Christian funeral service in a beautiful historic cathedral and who were impressed by the visually impressive pageantry ceremony, the uniforms, the military precision, the solemnity, the majesty, that's all good. But it's no good for one to know about the death of the Queen without knowing about the life and death of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At the Messiah presentation, King George II stood because he said, it's impossible to remain seated for the anthem of the King of Kings and that is why throughout the english speaking world we have this tradition of standing when the the message uh, when the hallelujah chorus is given well it's vital that we understand what queen victoria said uh, queen victoria when she's very aged she's at a presentation of Handel the Messiah, and uh, she was told by the organizers please your majesty don't feel any in, in obligation to stand in fear of your great uh, age please remain seated for the hallelujah chorus well The Queen stood, Queen Victoria, the monarch of the largest empire the world had ever known. She stood with her head bowed and trembling. And uh, she said uh, to the Dean of Westminster Abbey, uh, Dean Ferrer at the time, it would be the greatest privilege of my life if the Lord Jesus would return during my lifetime because nothing would give me greater joy than to hand over the throne and the crown to the one to whom it belongs in whose name it is held in trust. And there was a time when most of the monarchs of Europe, if not all of them, understood that they were accountable to the king of kings and lord of lords. I don't know how many presidents and heads of state around the world recognize that today, but every one of us will stand, bow, kneel, fall on our faces before Almighty God and give an account on the last day. And we should rule in the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And so it's so true what we hold, every one of us, we don't need to be kings and queens or or heads of state, to to know this truth applies to us too. We will be accountable to Almighty God, our creator and eternal judge, on the last day, to account for what we've done with our time, our talents, and our treasures. What have we done to serve the King of Kings? Have we been faithful? Have we done what he has commanded? You only have one life. It'll soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter, for such a touching personal message today um trying to work out where to go with with this and i'm probably the best thing for the benefit of the audience because you gave such uh excellent advice on how to cope with grief how to you know cope with difficult things difficult decisions how good things can come out of difficult decisions um and it's something that people tend to end up developing themselves as time goes on. And what the, the worst thing, I think, about grief, and it need not necessarily be about the loss of a, of a loved one, it could be a breakdown in a relationship or things like that. You know, generally, there's one party that wants to break up and the other one doesn't, and that's increasingly common in this day and age, sadly. But it is very useful to hear how other people have dealt with it. And it's also, I just wanted to throw in because Peter and I have been friends now for several years and I've known about Lenora's condition, but I never expected her passing. Uh, one time, for example, she was travelling uh, uh, in Europe and she posted me one of Peter's books because, of course, it's going to get to me quicker being posted in Europe than it is from South Africa. So I was like, well, I know Lenora's got... This illness, but she still seems mobile, able to get uh, uh, you know around. Um, and so, when she did pass, it was a shock. And it's also when you, I wanted to give the perspective of, of you know, Peter being a friend and what we do for a friend and how I felt. Now, I knew that Peter had his family around him, I know he has his ministry, I know he has people working at his ministry, he has many friends. So the chances of him wanting to speak to me about it, uh, if he had anything he wanted to talk about, were probably not that high. But at the same time, I wanted to you know, ensure that Peter knew that if he did, because sometimes people want to talk to somebody completely out of a situation, and they might want to talk to somebody overseas or something like that. Uh, so, so I, I said that to Peter. It's something. Anyway, every week, uh, if there's a problem, Peter will be in touch, but Peter's so self-sufficient that he never is, and we record our shows, we have a good chat before and after. But at the risk of, I don't want to ramble, I just want to say, if you are prepared to be there for someone, then just tell them that you are there if they need you, but only if you are prepared to be there, because I think the worst thing is, is if someone you know, offers that, and then if they are contacted, they're not there. Um, so that's really what I was trying to get to. Um, it's been a... It's, It's. I believe, the faith that Peter has has given him the strength. And the other thing that I tend to do with anything, and I know Peter does this because he's, he's the busiest person that I speak to when you think about the fact that he has a ministry that he runs he's writing books he's running um courses all these different things that he does with the bibles smuggling bibles it's just astonishing the breadth of of his work but that also helps because you cannot speed up time and when people say time is a healer that is actually i've certainly in my life it's been true that something really bad can happen and as time goes on you learn coping skills to deal with it, and gradually it's lifted away. It sometimes can take many years, but unfortunately you cannot speed up time. So any sort of coping mechanisms are very useful. Peter, any comments on that, please?
1: Yes. You know, there is the shock and the grief at the moment. But, you know, immediately after this, you get family and friends who do rally round and bring meals and help, and there's so many practical arrangements I can imagine now with the royal family, for example, Of course, there were lots of people around to try and help with the practical arrangements, but how terrible to have to um, put your grief on hold while you've got a public responsibility. Um, uh, <laughs> we had nothing compared to it, but um, my wife required that I take her funeral and memorial service, and, uh, and that was very, very hard, but she was adamant. Uh, when I said, I I can't take the funeral of my own wife, and she said, you have to, I don't want any of these weak men, these spineless cowards around Cape Town to have anything to do with my funeral. And uh, uh, she is so offended by these weak males who had gone along with the masquerade madness and the lockdown lunacy and all the rest and closed their churches. And and, uh, she was horrified at, at at compromise on so many levels. And you know, why these pastors can't make a stand uh, at the March for Life or uh, pro-life demonstrations or why they compromise with the government, why they gushed so much over Mandela uh, when he died, when he was no Christian at all and had done so much to, to um, de-Christianize and paganize our country and legalize abortion and so on. So, so she, she had issues with many of the pastors who would have been considered. And in the circles we knew, she said, you know, you must do the funeral well, that was hard. But on the other hand, it was therapeutic too, in a sense that the best thing to do with your grief immediately is be busy. And, of course, I had to put a lot of my energy into our grandchildren and our children, which is good and healthy, because uh, losing yourself, preoccupying yourself with serving others is, uh, is also healing. And also to honor my wife with written tributes, spoken um, audiovisual presentation, slide presentation, things like this, and um, what was posted, putting things on the web, compiling the different condolences from around the world, uh, and and building a, a website memorial to. I mean, these were parts of of the coping mechanisms, and they were all therapeutic. But you know, after the first couple of weeks, family and friends disappear, and suddenly you're alone, and it's it's uh, that's when the grief is. Really gets more intense, and so some of my coping mechanisms has been to pour out my heart and soul to help others. My grandson's take them on adventures regularly. That that's good and therapeutic, and getting outdoors, that's of course very healthy. But I've got I've got other friends, a very very good close friend who, who married P W. Botha's daughter. That's the president's daughter, um, and she's going through the same cancer journey. My wife went through. She's in her 12th year of this and is frankly, dying of cancer and chemo. And uh, so my friend who served as bodyguard to the president and colonel in the police force, um, you know, his wife's going through exactly what my wife went through uh, just a year later. And um, they were friends. And so now uh, I realized what's the best thing I could do? contact him and help him to understand what's coming and uh, how to best cope and how to serve his wife the best and and next thing he brought his daughter along for me to explain to her and, and so you know in one sense it opens wounds but in the other sense it's also healing to direct what we've learned to help others and um, so I've been doing more and more of a study on on death and and grief and trying to see how can I help others and I think that's how I've coped with a lot of the traumas through my life, is to write on the persecuted to speak up for them, to give them a voice, to get their pictures and stories and testimonies known, mm-hmm. to campaign on their behalf, to mobilise pressure on the persecutors uh, to see. And, and over my 40 years in ministry to have seen communist persecutors toppled like Samora Michelle in Mozambique and uh, religious freedom come to Mozambique, which was the killing fields when I started, my work there in the 80s. And, and to see South Sudan break away and independence and, and the Berlin Wall come down, the Iron Curtain collapse and religious freedom come to Eastern Europe. And, and to see positive things and to help them rebuild the Nuba Mountains and South Sudan from the persecution they suffered before. So I've been doing this for others. And now when it comes to my family, well, now I know about personal grief too. And uh, I think there's nothing worse than to do nothing. <laughs> the best thing is to channel your grief, your anger, your frustration, your rage, whatever it is, to channel it in a constructive way. First of all, in prayer. And in the Psalms, we have everything. We have frustration, we have anger, we have fear, we have guilt, we have grief, we have all of this, all in the Psalms. And to pray those Psalms is therapeutic, but then to get out there and serve and help. And um, I, I think that is so important because it instead of sitting at home and feeling sorry for myself, I get out and I help others. And that, I think, honours my wife. Um, I keep thinking of how to honour her in a memory and how to help those who are going through these battles now. Back to Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And uh, folks, you can contact Peter at his email address, peter at That's peter at And the main website is FrontlineMissionSA.org that's FrontlineMissionSA.org you can also find Peter Hammond on Facebook so I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on this very personal show the real story of death and the life after Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week I will of course be back with you all tomorrow and until then folks Thank you for listening, and bye.